Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and you made us alive together in Christ. We were blind, spiritually blind, to the glory of Christ, and you opened our eyes to see him as the glory of God in his face. We were so lost, and you sent Jesus to seek and save us in that state. And so, Lord, where would we be without your grace to us? And, Lord, as we open your word now and look at what you have said about yourself, I pray you'd open our eyes to see you more clearly and that you would stir up right responses in our hearts toward you, or that we won't be content with knowing truth, as important as that is, Lord, that we would respond to that truth with worship of who you are and what you've done. I pray for anyone who is here who doesn't know you yet, who's never tasted your grace through Christ, that even today they would experience the miracle that many of us have experienced of being born again and being brought into your family because of Christ. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our text for today touches on some of life's biggest questions. Where did we come from? And why are we here? What is God like? And what kinds of responses are appropriate to him? If you have your Bible, please turn with you to Psalm 8 as we continue our study of summer psalms. Let's start with what this psalm says about God. David begins and ends the psalm with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So first we see that God's name is majestic. Name is more than just what we call God. It is a shorthand expression for all of God's revealed character. It's a one-word summary of all his names and titles and attributes. For example, the Belgic Confession says, There is only one God who is a spiritual being. He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, almighty, perfectly wise, just, and good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. And if you wanted to capture all of that truth in just one single phrase, you could say, the name of God. It tries to summarize everything that God has said about himself. David mentions one of the names that God has made known to us, Lord. When you see it in all capital letters, it's Yahweh or Jehovah, meaning I am that I am. In other words, the self-existing, eternal God who has absolute being and is absolute reality. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He lives forever and is always with us. Lord, with just regular letters after capital L, is a title, meaning sovereign owner and ruler, the one to whom obedience and allegiance is due. Or as Paul would say in Acts, he is the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. 
So what does majestic mean? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name? Well, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means greatness or excellence. Impressive stateliness, dignity, or beauty. If something has majesty, it causes admiration for its beauty. So you know, just see beauty. You admire beauty. Majesty describes a quality that takes your breath away because it is so impressive. J.I. Packer says, Majesty is a declaration of greatness and an invitation to worship. And so as David considers the everlasting God who has absolute authority over all things and all the other things that God has said about himself, summarized in his name, he just can't help but saying, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. That's not just a statement of fact about God. It is a heartfelt declaration of praise to God. What he knows about God stirs up worship to God. So first, God's name is Majestic. Second, God's works are glorious. The next phrase says, You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So God is the creator of the universe, and he has displayed his splendor or his glory, which means great brightness, brilliance, or magnificence above the heavens. And maybe you're thinking of Psalm 19, where it says, The heavens declare or tell the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. So when we look up at the stars, they are sending us a clear message. Namely, there is a great and glorious God who made them and put them on display in order that we would give him the honor that is due him as the almighty creator. That's why they're there. They're sending a message every night. There's a God, there's a great God, there's a glorious God. Praise him. Third, God's ways are unexpected. Verse 2, back in Psalm 8. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So God uses unlikely means to accomplish his purposes For example, he uses weak, helpless little children to silence his enemies. Remember how Jesus applied that verse on the first Palm Sunday. We looked at this this past year on Palm Sunday. Remember the children are shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And the opponents of Jesus are indignant that they're saying that. They are not happy with the kids for saying things that sound like they believe Jesus is the Messiah. They're not happy at Jesus for accepting that kind of honor from them. And so it says, they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? So, That's what Jesus does with Psalm 8, verse 2. He says this is one of the ways God silences his enemies. He does things in a way that's unexpected. So what would be an appropriate response to the God whose name is majestic, whose works are glorious, and whose ways are unexpected? And one response would be a deep sense of awe. Awe is a feeling of respect or reverence 
mixed with dread and wonder, often inspired by something majestic, interesting enough, or powerful, an overwhelming emotion in which admiration, reverence, and wonder are mingled. So for example, um, when you see the latest images from the James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope, we don't just say, wow, those are stunning pictures, which they are. I love seeing them. Some of us have sent stuff to each other on, on oh, I don't send it, but I get pictures from guys who are like, look at this. Look at this nebulae or look at this cluster of stars. And it's, it is stunning. But the response is not just that, but wow, God is unimaginably awesome. That's where it's supposed to go. So Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So God created this vast universe by the word of his mouth, and the response to that is to stand in awe before that God. There's a quote from John Piper, some of you have heard before, but it fits this message. Charles Meisner expressed Albert Einstein's skepticism over the church with words that should awaken us to the shallowness of our experience with God in worship. The design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the religions he'd run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. And then Dr. Piper goes on. Scientists know that light travels at the speed of 5.87 trillion miles a year. They also know that the galaxy of which our solar system is a part is about 100,000 light years in diameter and has more than 200 billion stars. Scientists know these things and they are awed by them. And they say if there is a personal God as the Christians say there is who spoke this universe into being then there is a certain respect and reverence and wonder and dread that would come through when we talk about him and when we worship him. So that's the appropriate response. It's a sense of awe, a deep sense of awe at this God who created all things. Next, let's look at what this psalm says about man. First, man in the sense of human beings, not just males, is created by God. Back in Psalm 8, verse 5. Yet you have made him lower than God. You might have angels or heavenly beings. And yet you crown him with glory and majesty. So the clear, consistent teaching of the Bible is that God created us. We are not just accidents who evolved through a series of random chemical mutations. We are uniquely designed and made by God 
himself. Interesting note, in God's providence, Russ, or, um, Brett read from Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Or Psalm 100. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. God made us. We're created by him. Second, we're not only created by God, but we are also cared for by God. Verse 3 and 4 in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? I read that if the Milky Way, with its 200 billion stars, was the size of a football field, our whole solar system would be roughly the size of a grain of sand. So if that's true, then imagine how incredibly small planet Earth would be, because <laughs> you know how tiny Earth is compared to the solar system, how tiny Earth would be in that grain of sand, and then how microscopically teeny an individual human being would be on that little piece of earth that's inside that grain of sand. And yet, the infinite God who created this huge universe thinks about us and cares about us. He's not distant and removed, just far away. He pays attention to us and is actually concerned about us. So think about the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. It would have been easy for them to feel that God was not aware of their situation. Does he even know we're here? Does he see how awful this is? Does he hear when we pray for help? Maybe he's just too busy running the universe to care about us. But listen to what God says in Exodus 2. This is Exodus 2, verse 23. The sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel. And God took notice of them Chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And then chapter 4, verse 31. The, so the people believed and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. So they might have, it'd be easy to just feel like, where's God? Yeah, I believe the universe is amazingly huge, but that makes me feel really small. Does he even know I'm down here? And David and Exodus are saying, yes, he does. He sees you. He knows you. He cares. 
And then here's 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares or casting all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you, which both means he cares about us and he will take very good care of us. This infinite God cares. And a third thing we see about man is that we are commissioned by God. Look at verse 6 through 8 back in Psalm 8. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So it's very similar to what we read all the way in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that is our God-given role. This is a mission that gives us dignity and significance. We are God's image bearers. We are to reflect the glory of God like mirrors reflect light. Just parentheses, that's why we care about her health and baby bottles. Because preborn babies are created in the image of God. That gives them dignity. They're not just a blob of tissue that can be discarded. They're valuable because they're created in the image of God. And so is every other human life. Sick or, in, or all kinds of variables doesn't matter. Created in the image of God. And also, besides reflecting the glory of God, we have been appointed by God to govern this world that he has made and exercise dominion over creation as his representatives. So what would be an appropriate response to the truth that we are created and cared for and commissioned by God? And one fitting response would be a sense of wonder. When David thought about the being created by God, he said in Psalm 139, I will Give thanks to you or I will praise you. Why? For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. So David is filled with wonder at how God created him. Or in verses 3 and 4, when he considers the vastness of the universe and man in comparison, he feels and expresses a sense of amazement. He can't get over the fact that the infinite creator would notice him. It's astonishing to him that the almighty God would really care about him. He doesn't take it for granted as if that's just old news and no big deal. Of course God's thinking about me and looking at me and noticing me. Why wouldn't he? I'm so special. He's not going there. He's like, wow. 
can't believe it. The God who made all of this sees me, cares about me. Another response, which is not obvious in Psalm 8, so don't feel bad if you didn't see it, because I sure didn't either. But we will see in a moment from two New Testament texts is a sense of anticipation. So where do we get that? And the answer is we get it from Hebrews chapter 2. So go to Hebrews chapter 2. Starting at verse 5. For he, God, did not subject to angels the world to come, considering which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, namely David said in Psalm 8, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him, God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And he goes on from there. So let me read something from Dale Ralph Davis. He's keying in on verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And he says, but we don't see that. We don't see man ruling and controlling the whole created order. It seems more like cancer rules or tragedies rule or political tyrants rule. And that's what the writer of Hebrews said. He quoted Psalm 8 and his response was, you know, we don't yet see that, but we see Jesus. His argument is, no, we don't yet see God's plan in final living color, but we do see one man, Jesus, because of his suffering of death, he has been crowned with glory and honor, and he reigns already over the whole created order, and he will bring many sons to glory to share in his reign. Man does not yet enjoy the destiny mapped out in Psalm 8, but one man does, and that gives us solid hope. Jesus is already reigning, and that is the assurance that redeemed man, his brothers and sisters, will one day rule as well. And so you have Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Why? For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, 
and they will reign upon the earth. So that's what's coming. We don't see it yet, but that's what's coming. When Jesus returns, he will set all things right. He will restore all that was lost in the fall. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where sin and suffering and sorrow won't even exist anymore and death itself will be destroyed forever. That's what Paul does with this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning at... I guess 23. Wow, where do you start? <laughs> so Paul's already declared Jesus is risen. If he isn't, just forget it. And then he, let's just start in 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. That's where we're going. Then comes the end. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident he is accepted, Jesus, who put, or God, who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now that's a mouthful. I encourage you to just read that yourself in your own time and just ponder what's there. But that is where history is going. That's how the story of this life ends. We don't see it yet. We might not see it in our lifetime, but that's where this all is going. God will be all in all. Everything's subjected to him. God reigns. God's people flourish forever. It's, it's an incredible story. It looks bumpy now. I just talked to somebody this before Sunday school was born. There's scary stuff going on in this world. And I just, my standard line is keep your seatbelt on. <laughs> and then to point to things like this, it's going to be okay. Jesus is reigning right now. He's coming back. He's going to settle everything. It'll be all right. That's our hope. Our confident expectation of a future certainty because God who cannot lie and whose purposes cannot fail has promised it. So that's where I got anticipation. Sense of awe, it's pretty obvious. Sense of wonder, hopefully you see that. And a sense of anticipation of we're not, we're not home yet. This isn't it. 
It was never meant to be it. There's a much better world coming for those who belong to Christ. Well, we started by seeing some realities about God, that his name is majestic and his works are glorious and his ways are unexpected. And then we saw some things that are true about people. We are created by God and we are cared for by God and we have been commissioned by God. But there's one big issue that is not spelled out here in Psalm 8 that we need to talk about before we close. Namely, how can people like us have a relationship with the God who created us? And so we need to bring in a few more verses here. First, Isaiah 43, 7 tells us God created us for his glory. We were made to give God the honor that is due him as the great and glorious God that he is. That's the ultimate reason you and I exist. And yet, Romans 3.23 says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't give God the glory that's due him. And we can't plead ignorance. We can't say, oh, I didn't know I'm supposed to do that. Why not? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So Paul borrows Psalm 19, says, you've seen the glory of God when you looked up on the sky in a clear night. You can't say you don't know. There must be a God who made that. And then that God is worthy of glory and thanks, and you refuse to give it to him. You're guilty. That's not just, oh, you didn't know any better. You did know. And you refuse. So that's a problem. And there's nothing we can do to make things right. God does not need anything from us. And he will not accept anything that we try to offer him to try to make up for things. Ephesians 2 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. So that's the bad news. We're undone before God. We're without excuse before God. And there's absolutely nothing we can come up with to fix this problem. But the good news is that God himself has provided the solution. As we saw in Hebrews 2 and really the rest of the book of Hebrews, Jesus became a man like us. He lived a perfect God-honoring life. He went on to die as a substitute for sinners, paying the penalty we deserve to pay for our sin, bearing the wrath of God we should have had on us forever. And then he rose again from the dead so that all who put their trust in him would be forgiven their sins and restored to a relationship with God. If God is convicting you this morning, turn from being content with living a life that ignores and dishonors and disobeys God. And trust Christ alone as the only one who can rescue you. Believe his death on the cross is the only payment God will accept for sin. And believe his resurrection shows he is mighty to save all who come to God through him. Paul says in 1 Timothy, there is one God 
And there is one mediator between God and man. A mediator is a go-between that brings two parties together that are at odds. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be reconciled to God the Father. Let's pray. So, Lord, we bow before you as the almighty creator who has displayed your glory in the heavens. We bow before you as the God of all grace who sent Christ to redeem rebels like us who know you're worthy of glory and don't care until and unless you work in our hearts. And so I pray that you'd be working in hearts now, that those who have dishonored you, ignored you, defied you, would see they need you. They would see they need Jesus as the only one who can bring them to you and would turn from sin and turn to Christ. And Lord, I pray that for those who have trusted and are trusting Christ now, that we would have appropriate affections for you. Lord, would you deepen our sense of awe of who you are? Would you sustain a sense of wonder that we don't take it for granted that you care about us? And would you give us a sense of anticipation that Jesus is coming back and that we don't have to fear uh, what happens before that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.